Good evening, everyone. Good to have you with us tonight. Ezekiel 37, second part of this uh, passage we're going to be looking at tonight. Before we begin, I, I do have to make a couple of quick uh, announcements, or really more than anything, observations of things that I said and things that I have to kind of change around a little bit. Um, this past uh, Sunday, we were uh, <clears throat> looking at Psalm 83, and I and I really wanted to finish it all, but uh, you know, it, it, it's such an involved passage that deals with with the with the uh, the enemies of Israel in present in present times, uh, and so we got that started this weekend, but we didn't. We didn't get the first service, or I should say the Saturday night service, into that one. So uh, I thought, well, I'll get them caught up sometime. And, uh, and then we we're going to go into the second part of it. Then I, after the whole service and everything, I, I came to realize we have this, uh, our uh, baccalaureate service on Sunday, speaking directly to the, you know, the graduates and, and all. And I thought, well, we could do that, but it's, it's kind of like, uh, so anyway, uh, I think the Lord's working this thing through for us that uh, I can bring the Saturday night service up to where we are, and then the following week after baccalaureate services this coming weekend, we'll all be all together on the second part of Psalm 83. And so I'm laughing about it, but you're not, but that's okay. Just don't throw anything at me. Uh, we'll get it all done. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's even better. You know, just, just smile and love me. And, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll let the Lord take care of everything else. So Ezekiel 37. Now, we began this passage last week. And what we had learned in, in that particular passage was that the prophet Ezekiel was, was commanded by the Lord to prophesy to a valley that was full of very dry, brittle bones. And these bones were to hear the word of the Lord. God commanded Ezekiel to preach to these bones. These dry, dead bones, which represented a very dead nation. And they were told that God himself the very one who was speaking through the prophet would breathe life into them that they might live again. And not only live again, but have sinew and flesh placed upon them again that they should know that he is the Lord. And so after Ezekiel prophesied, a noise and a shaking began as the bones started coming together bone to bone. Sinew and flesh were added and skin began to cover the newly formed bodies. Now you do know that this was a vision given by the Lord to Ezekiel. But a very graphic and significant vision Ezekiel was then told to prophesy to the wind, to breathe upon the slain that they might live. And he called upon the four winds, the ruach, this very same word that is, that, that is used in, Hebrew, in, in the Hebrew scriptures for breath, for the spirit, for the wind. He was to prophesy to the wind to breathe upon the slain that they might live. Because you see, when the sinew and the flesh and the skin came upon these bones, they still needed life. And the breath of God, the ruach of God came and breathed upon them, came into them, and they lived, stood upon their feet, and as the text tells us, they became an exceedingly great army. They were now the whole nation of Israel. And the Lord was intent on bringing them back into the land which he had given them. 
but now as a resurrected nation. I thought about this phrase, an exceedingly great army, <laughs> because uh, what we have seen since 1948, when Israel became a nation again, and Eretz Israel became the land again that God had promised to them with people in it, fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah primarily and, and, and the other prophets. But I, I started thinking about them being a great, exceedingly great army because they have become quite an army for such a small nation in a very short time. In fact, as we've stated many, many times, uh, they, from the day that they became a nation, had to begin to fight for their existence from day one. And they survived in, in 1948, in 1956, in 1967, we know that that is attributed to the, to the God of Israel himself. But a thought had come to mind, and I heard this a while back, and, and, and that is that if the enemies of Israel wanted peace, if they really wanted peace, there would be peace, because that's Israel's desire. If the, if the enemies of Israel truly wanted peace, there would be peace. If Israel wants war, they will win it. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? That if you have an army that you are trying to destroy, in this case, you would destroy a whole nation because the whole nation is the army of God. It's an incredible thought. The world around them wants, if, 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 you know, they want war with Israel all the time because they want to destroy Israel. So if, 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 the, if the enemies want peace, they'll have peace. But if Israel wants war, you have to watch out because they, be, they, are, they are motivated and even if they may not know, their God is with them. So now as a people who had lost hope in, every being, in ever being a nation again after the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of their temple, the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, wanted to make it clear to those in captivity, to those who were in Babylon, because that's where Ezekiel was. That's where Daniel had been. But the God of Israel wanted to make it clear to those in captivity that they would once again be his flock in the city of Jerusalem, fulfilling once again their solemn feasts and knowing that he is the Lord. Can, can these dry bones live? That was, a, that was the question that God asked Ezekiel. And of course Ezekiel said, well, you're the one that knows, Lord. Those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ should be encouraged by the fact that, that just as Ezekiel obeyed the Lord in speaking God's word to these dry bones, so are we to never assume that it is pointless to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to those that are dead in their trespasses and sins. Just remember where we were before we became alive in Christ. When you read Ephesians chapter 2 and you realize that before we became believers in Jesus Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins as well. Just as dead. And I didn't emphasize this last time because of time, but in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, Paul says, for the word of God is quick. In other words, it is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It was God who said to Ezekiel, go and prophesy to the dry bones. Any prophet that would go forth to prophesy by God's direction, by God's order, can give them only one thing, and that is the word of God. Thus saith the Lord. It is the word of God that maketh us alive. It was the word of God spoken to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Ruach of God, that took us that were dead and made us alive in Christ. For by grace are you saved, Paul went on to say. It reminds us of what it says in Isaiah 55, verse 11, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Well, we certainly know that that took place when God spoke to Ezekiel to speak to the dry bones, and the dry bones then received the Spirit of God, the breath of God, the life of God. And even though it was in vision, it was something that was going to happen to a whole nation of people at a future time. Yes, God brought his people back into the land 70 years after they were taken into captivity. And they began to rebuild the city again. Until about 500 years later, it would be destroyed again. And in between, someone wanting to destroy them, Antiochus Epiphanes. So they have gone through so much. Yet God, if you remember, has to remain faithful because he cannot deny himself. And the covenant that he made with his people. So with these things in mind, let's continue our study here of chapter 37 where, where God has Ezekiel do something now with two sticks. We're told in verses 15 through 17, the word of the Lord came again unto me saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel his companions. And then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions, and join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. Now, that should, be, that should seem pretty obvious to you, right? You do remember that Israel was a divided nation. The mention of Ephraim is, is speaking of the northern kingdom. The mention of Judah, of course, is the southern kingdom. I'll talk about that in just a moment. But I think if, if you've read the scriptures enough, you know that if, you, if he's talking about two sticks and bringing them back into one, we, we pretty much know what that all means. Unless you're Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. Because he would tell people that his name was actually in the Bible. That he himself was prophesied in the Bible. That he was this Joseph mentioned here in the text. And that the stick, the stick that was, was mentioned for Judah was actually the Bible. And that the stick mentioned for Joseph was the Book of Mormon. And this is what they'll tell you, that this is how you get all of the wisdom and insight that you need in both of these books. That is so far-fetched. And yet, how many millions of people have believed this lie down through the ages? At least the ages since Joseph Smith has been around. But how gullible are people? How undiscerning are people? That if you just read the whole chapter, you realize who the sticks are representing. 
This sign to the whole, it pointed to the whole house of Israel being reunited into one nation. The reunification of two kingdoms of Israel. We know again that after the death of King Solomon, that the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms. The ten northern tribes formed the northern kingdom of Israel, and the tribes of Judah and Benjamin formed the southern king of Judah. The reason why they were either called Joseph or Ephraim or Ephraim was because they were the largest of the of the kingdoms of the or the largest of the tribes of the northern kingdom. And the tribes of Judah and Benjamin formed the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom was often, as I said, referred to as Ephraim or Joseph because they were the largest ones. But we also know that down through the centuries, both kingdoms, both kingdoms turned away from the Lord and disobeyed his commandments. More so in the northern kingdom since they had no good king that served the people. There were no good kings in the northern kingdom. You know, that began, of course, with, with Jeroboam going up north and then establishing a place of worship up in the north, which was not what God wanted them to do. But, of course, it was worship, the worship of idols. In the southern kingdom, there were both good and bad kings, but sadly, their people lived wicked lives. They engaged in idolatry. They worshiped false gods. And consequently, God's judgment fell on both kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom of Judah, of course, fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So think about that. Both of them disobeyed the Lord. The ones that lasted longest, of course, were the, were, were the, the children of Judah down in the south. They had good kings, they had bad kings, they had good kings, they had bad kings. Ended up with a bad king to finish it all off, to take them into captivity. So the news that Jerusalem had fallen to all of those exiles who had already been taken to Babylon. And as we speak, as we've spoken about previously, brought extreme discouragement to the people along with a spirit of hopelessness. I talked about that hopelessness last week. Bringing them to a feeling of giving up their nation for lost. But the Lord had other plans. I think that the plans that God had for his people in principle are the plans that God has for us. What we have to do is remember God's plans for his people. The way we remember God's plans for his people is that we stay in his word. And when we stay in his word, we realize what great grace he has, he has toward us or what great grace he has shown toward us, what great mercies he's extended toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, gave us the opportunity to come to life in Christ so that we have not only life in this earth that is... That is uh, uh, is one of, of, of blessing, but it's, it's a life that's most importantly eternal. And so God had Ezekiel write the names of both Judah and Ephraim on two sticks and then hold them together as one. And what he did in doing that prompted the people's curiosity. If you look at verse 18, it says, When the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by these? I mean, they, they don't understand. What are you doing with the two sticks? Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his fellows, and will put them with, with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. One in my hand. And the sticks whereon thou writest shall be in thine hand before their eyes. In other words, you're holding them as one stick before the people to see it. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen. The children of Israel being the one nation from the two. 
whether, whether they be gone and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. You see how if you follow the text in context, then you realize this isn't about Joseph Smith. It's about Israel, the nation. I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel and one king, <coughs> excuse me, one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations. Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. And neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places, wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God. So this prophecy that the two kingdoms would become one nation again was also prophesied by other prophets, but in particular, Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah wrote in, in Jeremiah 3, verse 18, In those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel. So already there is that implication here that the two houses would walk together. So in those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given for an inheritance unto your fathers. And then in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, it says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. Now, we've, often, uh, we've talked about this before. The righteous branch, of course, is the Messiah. It is Yeshua. It is Jesus. And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, notice, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely that is, again, speaking that the two are one. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. Now, some people would like to believe that verses 21 and 22 of uh, Ezekiel 37 have already taken place in Israel today. Let me remind you, it says, And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. So there are some who want to believe that that's already taken place. Now, it is, I, I want to consider it as partial fulfillment. Because indeed, if you've been to Israel, you realize that, number one, the land is inhabited by people who are Jews, the land that once was desolate is now a very fruitful land. That again is a fulfillment and it's a partial fulfillment of scripture because there's still a lots of, lot of areas in, in Israel itself. And don't forget that is that little strip of land was not the only part of land that God had promised to them. Remember, it was all the way to the Nile River and then extending over to the Euphrates. That's a pretty good chunk of land. And much, much of that land is very fruitless. <laughs> it's not, you know, fruitful at all. But Israel is, where, the, where God's people are, there's a lot of fruit. But nonetheless, some of these things have been partially fulfilled. They have become a nation again. But we need to understand that the complete fulfillment has yet to be accomplished. And I certainly believe that the fulfillment is in the very, very near future. Now we know from our studies of Ezekiel, as well as the books of Kings and Chronicles, that the last king to reign in Israel was Zedekiah. And he reigned specifically in Judah. So he was one of the southern kings, but, but he was uh, not a good king. 
And this, of course, was the same king that was blinded by Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, he, he, killed, his own, he killed Zedekiah's sons in front of him and then took his eyes out because that would be the last thing that he would remember and that he would see in his mind's eye for, for, for the rest of his life. And uh, as I said, this, this was the same king, Zedekiah, who was blinded by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And then he was taken away captive to Babylon. So since Zedekiah, there has not been a king over the people of Israel. As for today, they obviously, uh, there, there obviously isn't a monarchy in Israel. There's no king in Israel today. There's not even any royalty in Israel to speak of. They are a, a parliamentary government. They have a parliament. It's called the Knesset. They have a prime minister. They, they, they also have a president. Uh, but uh, there, there are no kings. There's no royalty in Israel to speak of. But one day there will be a king over the nation of Israel. And I think we all know who that is. Because he will be no earthly king. It indeed will be the Lord himself who will rule and reign in Jerusalem on the very throne of David. Why David? Why him? We know that it is important to realize that the prophecies coming through Abraham were to lead directly to David because David would actually be the, the first true king of Israel. Not to say that Saul wasn't a king of Israel, but who chose Saul? The people had God as their king, if you remember. But they said, we want a king like all the other nations. <laughs> so he was, a, he was the people's king, but he wasn't God's choice. David, the youngest of Jesse's sons, would be chosen by God and then anointed by the priest Samuel as the anointed king of Israel. The establishment of the throne then was through David, and that is why the very throne of David today continues to be what we hear and see in the scriptures. But then again, Jesus, when you look at his genealogies, from both Joseph's and, and Mary's side, of course, we know that uh, Mary was, Mary conceived by, by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph was more of a stepfather. Nonetheless, they were from the house of David. So, with that in mind, it is the Lord himself who is going to be ruling and reigning in Jerusalem on the very throne of David. Now, consider Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3 for just a moment. Consider how dark Israel was until the Messiah came. As the prophecy back in, in Isaiah 9 of the light shining in the darkness. Uh, and the light had come to that area of, of Zebulun and Naphtali. But consider verse 1 of Isaiah 60. It says, Arise, shine, for thy light has come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. And we know one thing, and we've already touched upon this before already, and that is that when Jesus takes the throne in Jerusalem, then all the nations will come and gather at Jerusalem, because Jesus then will be ruling and reigning on that throne over all the nations. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, it says, And in these days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Well, which kingdom is that? That, of course, is, is, is speaking of the kingdom of Israel. But the Messiah will be sitting on the throne. 
It is a Messiah who will come with ten thousands of his saints, place his feet upon the Mount of Olives, walk from the Mount of Olives, actually open up that whole valley, the Kidron Valley in front of him. It'll all be opened up, and he'll walk through the gate that's right now sealed in Jerusalem. Well, that's not going to be very hard because nothing's impossible for God and nothing's impossible for the Messiah. So it says, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. So it's not going to be about nations. Now it's about one king. The confirmation of this is seen in in the sounding of the seventh trumpet judgment in Revelation chapter 11, where it says, and the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord. Now notice, the kingdoms of this world, with all of their earthly kings, are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah, his Mashiach, Christ, is, is the transliteration through many different ways of the, the Mashiach or the Messiah of Israel. And he shall reign forever and ever. So right there it tells us how long he's going to reign. It's going to, there's not going to be any, you know, even if they brought up some kind of a war against Jesus. I mean, he's, it's not, how are you going to beat him? That doesn't make sense. You know, that everybody would even want to. But you know who wants to? The enemy does. And we know that at the very end of the thousand year reign of Christ, the enemy is going to be loosed for a little while. And then he's going to be taken and cast into the lake of fire. So the Messiah will reign forever and ever, and the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and has reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldst give, uh, thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldst destroy them which destroy the earth. There's coming a time of great judgment upon the earth. These are, these are warnings that God has given and said these are going to happen. So before they happen, you have every opportunity to come to the love of God and to the love of Christ. To come and to have your sins cleansed and taken away from you. And to know that it was Jesus himself, God, who came to this earth and took upon himself flesh to die on our behalf. All of the sacrifices, everything that we saw from the Old Testament and all the sacrificial things that we read about were all to point to this Messiah. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where is the, where, where is the first and, and most significant promise of the Messiah where God speaks to the enemy himself and I want to read that but it's not going to come up here but you can you, you all know it Genesis chapter 3 verse verse, verse 15 I guess I should have put it in there and I will put enmity God is saying I'm going to put hostility or enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Well, there can be no other way of seeing that particular verse than to see that Jesus was the one whose heel crushed the enemy. But the enemy did bruise the heel. It needed to be bruised. Why? Because Jesus needed to die on our behalf. So we see then how, how important it is that that the Lord has cried out even to all of the earth. Tremendous scriptures in the, in, the, in the prophecy of Isaiah. God saying to everyone, come unto me all ye lands and turn to me and be saved. In verse 23 of our text, going back to Ezekiel 37. 
In verse 23, the Lord promised to save and to cleanse the people from their sins. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people and I will be their God. They would no longer defile themselves through idolatry or through false worship or other wicked behavior. And if you remember in our earlier studies of the book of Ezekiel, how God had taken Ezekiel to, Jer- uh, to Jerusalem in vision and he, and he took him right into the very heart of the temple. And even in broken down walls, he, he had Ezekiel go into these secret chambers and saw all of these detestable things written upon the walls. Idolatrous things, pornographic things. And yet the Lord would deliver them from their bondage of sin and cleanse them from their defilement. Why? Because he promised them. He would keep his part of the covenant. And again, that goes back to that unilateral covenant that he made with Abraham. That they would always be his people. Now, that is a nation. But as individuals, how many of them lost their lives eternally because they turned from their God? See, we ought to to remember that. When Jesus came, he came to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, but to as many as received him, both Jew and Gentile, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God. Yet one of the first things we read in the Gospel of John is what? He came unto his own and his own received him not. But as a nation, God says, I I have my name. We we read about that back in in chapter 36. Not for your sakes do uh, do I this, saith the Lord, but be it known unto you, be ashamed and confounded for your ways. Thus saith the Lord God, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will cause you to dwell in the cities, and so on and so forth. But he talks about the fact that he did this for his name's sake. So the Lord would deliver them from their bondage of sin and cleanse them from their defilement. He also promised to establish a personal relationship with the people. Once their sins were washed away, they would become God's people and he would become their God. That's what that means. You will be my people, I will be your God. How is that for us today? We always talk about having a personal relationship to Jesus Christ. It's the very same thing. You're mine and I'm your God. You are my people, I am your God. He and he alone would be worshipped by them. Who do we worship? We worship God. We worship the one who came to give his life for us. And he's worthy of our praise, he's worthy of our worship. Now, the only way they could be cleansed, the only way anyone can be cleansed, is by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, there's not two rules for two different peoples. Remember what Paul said in Romans? All have sinned and all fallen short of the glory of God. That is everyone. Not just some, but all. Jew and Gentile. Because we have established already by the word of God that there are only two types of people in the world. Jews and Gentiles. That's how God breaks it all down. Yeah, there are many races, many tribes, nations, tongues, and peoples, yes. But you're either a Jew or a Gentile. The only way that they could be cleansed, the only way anyone could be cleansed is by the blood of Jesus Christ. Consider what John writes in 1 John 1 verses 7 through 9. He says, but if we walk 
in the light. Now remember, John was a Jew. As a matter of fact, all the disciples were Jews. And all the writers of the New Testament were Jews. Now some would say, well, what about Luke? He was a Gentile. He certainly knew a lot about uh, Jewish traditions. Probably was a slave of one and maybe became Jewish. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ's Son cleanses us from all sin. Cleanses us, Jew and Gentile, from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no distinctions here as to who it is that has sins and who doesn't. Or that you have a label called Jew and, and you, or a Jewish person and you're Jewish. You know, well, I'm, I'm a Jewish person. I, I'm naturally saved. <laughs> what, what did Peter preach in the temple on the day of Pentecost? But the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they needed to know that when they took Jesus to the cross, they had killed the one who had come to die on their behalf. What must we do, they cried, to be saved? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Think about the words in Hebrews, chapters, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 12 through 14. Where again Paul says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption, having obtained eternal, eternal redemption for us. Now, Paul is using what? He's using all of the uh, ceremonial examples given to the Jewish people by the Lord from the beginning of the nation when they received his law and then they received his, uh, his commandments and they received, uh, then they received the statutes and all of the other things pertaining to the ceremonial law the building of the tabernacle eventually the temple and everything that was supposed to be used for sacrificial reasons Neither by the blood of goats and cows, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and, and, and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ? How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience? from dead works to serve the living God. How much more the blood of Christ? A lot more. That much more. Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot save us. It was only types. It was to show them what needed to be done because they had to do this every year, didn't they? On the Day of Atonement, all of the blood sacrifices that were brought to the temple. So these passages of scriptures now help us to, to identify the person described in the next passage of Ezekiel, chapter 37. Look at verses 24 and 25. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. So who would that be? Who is of the line of David? Yeshua, Jesus. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. How significant was it that David was a shepherd? How significant is it that Jesus himself to his disciples said, I am the good shepherd? The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Great typology throughout. They shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. In other words, not just observe them, but do them. Live by them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. 
and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. My servant David. Well, David has been dead and buried now for a long time. So who is this David but Yeshua, who comes from the line of David? If you go back to chapter 34 of Ezekiel, the Lord had promised the people a shepherd king from the line of David. And I will set up, this is Ezekiel 34, 23, and I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them even my servant David. Now listen again to what Jesus said back in, in, in the Gospel of John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. Remember he also said, I am the door of the sheep. He's the door of the sheep. He's the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The, the sheep hear my voice and follow me. So I will set up one shepherd over them and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd and I the Lord will be their God. And my servant David, my servant David, a prince among them, I the Lord have spoken it. As the prince here in this particular aspect of royalty, Jesus is sitting on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem for a thousand years on this earth. And the capital of all of the earth will be Jerusalem. Because that is where the throne of David is. And Jesus will rule and reign for a thousand years. As a prince, that does not negate his being the king of kings and the lord of lords. It's just another terminology here, or another part of the terminology, that reflects now the royalty of God. The royal nature of God. When you read, for example, in the Psalms about my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, as, as, he does, as it's written in, in Psalm 110. And, and it, is, it is the Lord giving his son the, you know, the inheritance of all things. And he says, I, the Lord, have spoken it. In other words, hey, it's my word. My word, and I want to keep it. Because God always keeps his word, doesn't he? So the Messiah would be the final and only shepherd of God's people, and they will follow him and obey God's commandments. So the Lord also promised that they would live in the land forever under the kingship of Messiah Jesus. And notice, uh, getting back to our text in verse 26 now. Moreover, I will make a covenant, a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant. So here again, notice the wording here. This is not just a, a, it's going to be a covenant for a certain amount of time. It is an everlasting covenant. That is the kind of covenant that he made with Abraham. For his people through Isaac and through Jacob. So, moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. So we know where that's going to be. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know. And remember that the heathen, the word is the goyim, or the goy, which is the, the Gentiles. So it's, it's, it's all the nations. It translates to nations or Gentiles, but in this case it's the nations. And the heathen or the nations shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel. Can, can you tell right now that uh, the United Nations doesn't have much longer to live as, a, as an organization? I mean, this is God speaking about a time that he says, listen, I'm going to set apart, sanctify, and bless my people Israel. All you guys have ever done is condemn them. All you, all you guys in the, in the United Nations, do, all you ever do is, is just complain about them. 
And I, I've been the first to tell you that, you know, they're not perfect right now. But the nations are going to know that God loves his people, will sanctify them, which means he will set them apart when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. When that time comes, there's going to be one united nations, and they're going to meet in Jerusalem. And the nations shall come, and they're going to worship the Lord. The day is coming very soon when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will return. But let me tell you that he's going to return as the tribulation period comes to an end. Now, when he comes, he's going to come with ten thousands of his saints, which doesn't mean there's only going to be ten thousand. That is a number that is used to say multitudes and multitudes. Well, where do these multitudes come from? Well, seven years before, before the tribulation itself begins, is the rapture of the church. That is what we are looking for, the coming of Jesus Christ. So when that happens, then the tribulation begins, the period comes to, uh, goes through its three and a half years, then the Antichrist reveals himself as he goes into the temple to be worshiped. Then the worst part of everything happens in the, the last three and a half years, especially against Israel, against God's people. Many of them will die. Many of them will flee Jerusalem as they had fled before. They will go into a place that has been set aside for them in Jordan called Petra. We've talked about that numerous times. We're going to talk about it again, I'm sure. But when Jesus returns, it will be as the tribulation period comes to an end, and he then will regather his people, Israel. This is another reason why the church is not involved during the seven-year period. God is focused completely upon the nation of Israel. Will there be converts during the tribulation time? Yes, of course, we know that. There are tribulation saints. Many, many may lose their lives for being believers during that time. But if they do, they're going to be with the Lord. The point here is, though, that the Lord is going to come, he's going to gather his people, and he's going to set up his glorious kingdom. Listen to Jesus say in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And not spending too much time, but the elect is the people of Israel. All you have to understand is look, go back a few verses within Matthew 24 and realize that the whole context is about the people in Jerusalem and in Israel. And everything is about their suffering through that time. So that is the context of that passage. But getting back to our text, the Lord promised to make an everlasting covenant of peace with his people. When this covenant was established, they would be secure in the land and their population would increase. This, these are the promises of God in this particular passage. But he also promised to place his sanctuary among his people. So when Messiah returns to set up God's kingdom on earth, the promised land will be the seat of God's government specifically in Jerusalem. Now, God's temple will be built in Jerusalem and a very special manifestation of his presence will dwell there with his people forever. He will be their God and they will be his people. Now, if they see him, and what do we know from the book of Zechariah and from the book of Revelation? That when his people see him, 
they will mourn. They will mourn as one who has lost their only begotten son. They will mourn because they'll know who he is. The appearance of Jesus Christ in this glorious way that Jesus himself describes it Believers would not need that, right? Because when Jesus comes for his church, he comes like a thief in the night. And he snatches his people away. That's the word that is used, snatch away. But when he comes, he comes, as, again, as, as, as other texts say, with ten thousands of his saints. And every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. And his people will know him. And they will come to him. How many of them will be crying out for mercy? Will God be merciful? Will Christ be merciful? He was to us, wasn't he? Lastly, the Lord promised to make Israel holy. Verse 28. The heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. To sanctify means to make holy. To make, to make holy means to set apart for God's service. To set apart for God's worship. We today, as believers in Jesus Christ, are set apart for that very, th very same thing. To worship the Lord, to serve the Lord, to honor God by our lives, by everything we are and everything that we do and everything we say. Not, not, it, it, this isn't a, a, a kind of thing where you know, we, we just would like to spend you know, more time with the Lord. We need to remember that we're, everything we do is with the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Does God ever sit back and say, you know, I sure like to spend more time with my people. You think he'd ever say that? But he doesn't have to. Why? Because he said, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the world, I'll be with you. Which means that the very heart of a believer in Jesus Christ says, well, Lord, then, then that means I don't take any vacation from being a believer and I'm just going to spend my time with you. And whatever it may be, wherever I may go, everything I do then pertains to my fellowship and my relationship to God and to Jesus Christ. Everything. You know, this, this isn't a club. Like that you join, you know, you pay dues. But we don't pay dues, you know, the price has already been paid. Jesus paid them. To as many as receive him, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God. Man, when you're family, you're always family, right? What's wrong with some people? I don't understand how they, you know, they get this thinking that, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, I only go to church twice a year, and you know, I only think about God, you know, four times a year, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> You've got to remember something, man. Your family. If He's our Father and Jesus is our is our elder brother, man. I mean, we got we got some got some pretty heavy family that we need to remember about and we need to get to know you know there's times when we say you know I have some family in some other state or some other country or whatever we just say well I sure like to know them well get to know Jesus get to know the father spend time in prayer spend time in his word love him I mean come on here I am preaching to the choir right yeah, I'm sure you do Love it. 
So his very presence with his people will sanctify. His very presence will sanctify them and make them strong witnesses to God's true saving grace. And the nations will know that only the one true God can make Israel holy and set apart for his purposes, and that forever. The nations will know that. They don't care to know that right now. The fact of the matter is we have God's word and and we should know it. Consider, if you will, the words of the Apostle Paul concerning Israel's salvation. I want to close with this, okay? So turn to Romans chapter 11. Now, you do have to remember that chapters 9 through 11 are, are Paul's dissertation, as it were, about Israel still being important to God. They are, they are God's heart toward his people, Israel. Chapters 9 through 11. So here's somewhat of the, 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 the conclusion of what Paul has been saying. He said, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, the mystery of God's love for his people, Israel, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, and, and, I, and I can understand what he's saying here in this because a lot of times some Christians, you know, they, they, they look down on Jews like, well, these people just, you know, they, they let their Messiah go. They don't even care to love him. They don't even care to know who Jesus is. And they'll, they'll even mock Jesus. You know, it's not for us to judge them in that respect. This is why Paul is saying, I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And if that includes the very fact that we're, we're waiting for the last person to, you know, to, that's going to be saved before the rapture of the church, then, then praise the Lord, because then God's going to go back to dealing with Israel as a nation. And so all Israel shall be saved. Now understand when he says that. As a nation... As a nation and as a people, so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is what we've been reading here. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As a nation, as a people. See, understand this. There are people today who are Jewish and they have come to their Messiah. They are Messianic Jews. They they are believers in Yeshua as their Lord and Savior. Individually they have come. But one day as a nation they shall come to the Lord. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. Wow, that's a heavy, that's a heavy duty statement. As concerning the gospel, the good news, they're enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election. They are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. He has made a covenant that he's going to keep with Israel. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. The Lord went to his people first. Paul talks about it even in in Romans chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God has concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. And that is his desire, to have mercy upon all of his people. As a nation, God will save Israel. What he's saying in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans is God is not yet done with his people. Unfortunately, 
segments of the church today believe that God is completely done with Israel. But they're foolish to think that way. They're foolish to think that way because they have not taken the time to see from Genesis to Revelation God's plan for his people. God, what they're saying is then if he has let them go is that God has broken his own covenant. And folks, God doesn't break his promises. So understand how precious Israel is to our Father. How precious he is to our God. How precious Israel is to our Messiah who says, I am going to save them. I'm going to rescue them and I'm going to sanctify them by my presence among them. So next week we're going to get into chapter 38. I don't know how long we'll be in chapter 38. It could be until the rapture of the church. But we'll see. We're going to be talking about a war that is, that is very near happening. And we're going to talk about the, the players in this war. I say the players, it's a bad choice of words, but I mean, you know, we were talking about that in Psalm 83 this past Sunday, dealing with the, the, the people that are mentioned that hate Israel in Psalm 83. And by the way, I'm going to have a map. I guess I'm going to appease everybody by having a map on this Sunday so that I could talk about what's going to happen on the next Sunday. Okay. We're all going to work it out. And guess what? Sometime in June, we'll get back to John. Okay. Let's pray. <laughs>